This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in your day, what's the first thing you would do? Get outside more? Check in on that friend you've been meaning to catch up with? Maybe learn how to play an instrument? I know I've thought about what I would do with more time in my day, and many people daydream about what they might do in that scenario. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your actual schedule is to know what's important to you and take whatever reasonable steps you can to make those things more of a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. Therapy is not just for people who've experienced major traumas. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and it empowers you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about giving therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a quick questionnaire that will match you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash FilmDaily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Thursday, July 6th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor BJ Colangelo. Hi, hi, hiya. BJ, how are you? How's it going? I'm doing pretty well this week. I mean, it's post-holiday week, and so that means a lot of fun, exciting news is getting dropped now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and you mentioned the holiday week. I think there's not actually a ton of, of news that's happened this week because Hollywood essentially took Monday and Tuesday off. So I think mm-hmm. we only have four stories that I want to talk about today. Um, but let's go ahead and, and dive into those. So the first one involves sort of the next act of uh, Greta Gerwig, who is directing the Barbie movie, which is coming out very soon. I know that we're all very excited about that. Uh, maybe nobody more than you that I know, BJ, <laughs> considering <laughs> your uh, your obsession with all things Barbie, as we talked about recently. Oh, um, yeah. The Barbie movie's release is currently like what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's like, oh, one more sleep until Barbie. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, yes, in a, a piece, uh, I believe that was published by The New Yorker, um, there's a big profile of Greta Gerwig. And uh, that piece, I believe, was the first place to reveal the information that Greta Gerwig has a deal set up with Netflix to write and direct at least two movies in the upcoming reboot of the Chronicles of Narnia films, which are based on C.S. Lewis's, uh, I think, seven book uh, children's series. And Mm -hmm. these were adapted into movies before. I think they were like made for TV, like BBC movies at one point. And then uh, they were like, you know, I guess in the wake of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the, the, um, 
success of Peter Jackson's films, uh, Disney and this company called Walden Media made, I think, I think it was just three Chronicles of Narnia movies, um, starting with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, and then they had intentions of sort of like blowing this out and maybe potentially like um, adapting every single book in that franchise. But like, I guess audience interest kind of waned a little bit as the years went on. So that that version of um, of their adaptation sort of ended up falling apart. But back in 2018, they announced uh, that Netflix is going to be making more Chronicles of Narnia movies, probably remaking the ones that uh, that Disney and Walden already did. Um, so now that we know that uh, Greta Gerwig is writing and directing at least two of these movies, uh, BJ, what do you think about that? I'm really excited for Greta Gerwig. I did see some people who were complaining that, you know, oh, this is just further proof she's selling out. As if Little Women is not a beloved literary classic that she also has already done. So I feel like this is really smart. I have a feeling they are going to do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just because that's the one I think the general public is most familiar with. But I am holding out hope that this will finally be an adaptation of The Silver Chair, which is my favorite book in the series. I was going to ask, yeah, what what is your relationship to that series? Have you read all those books? Oh, yeah. I I was a, a big reader as a kid, so I did read all of the Chronicles of Narnia books. Um, but The Silver Chair is my favorite one. It's the first one that doesn't involve the Pevensey children. Um, and that makes it very special and I think is also why it kind of gets forgotten when we do adaptations um, because everybody loves the story of the kids because that's who you start with. And then when the the series is kind of like, well, screw these kids. We don't care about them anymore. <laughs> uh, people kind of check out. But I think that Greta Gerwig could actually absolutely do this and do it well. She obviously has a great love of literature. Um, I'm excited to see what she does with something that's really fantastical. I mean, Barbie is pretty fantastical, but also it is very specifically fantastical, whereas Chronicles of Narnia feels a little bit more traditional. So I'd love to see what her take on this is and you know what she's going to do with the very, very obvious Christian undertones in all of these books. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a huge part of it. Aslan the Lion, very much a Jesus figure. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the thing that sort of fascinates me about this is, like, this is a, a huge movie. Like, Barbie is a big movie, and but, like, the production design and the, the look and the aesthetic um, is very, like, um, eye-popping and colorful, but, like, the... Narnia movies are like they involve you know centaurs and like things that were like VFX has to come into into play in a much more overt way. Um, Absolutely. And this is going to be yeah like on on that level the biggest thing that that Gerwig has done so far. Um, I'm not saying that she's incapable of doing it. I think like you mentioned you know the the literary connection. These are probably books. I'm guessing that based on comments she's made in the past about like any project that she takes on has to have like a deep meaning to her and deep resonance. She's not just going to like jump from gig to gig. Um, I, I have to feel like she has a special relationship with these books or they have a special place in her heart anyway. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what she does with them. I wonder like, yeah, w which one they're going to do. Like you mentioned, Lion, Witch and Wardrobe is definitely like the, the most um, obvious entry point, but I wonder if they would decide to, yeah, like skip around to maybe the horse and his boy, or or like you said, silver chair, like one of these ones that hasn't necessarily made the um, the trip to Hollywood before. Like I, I believe mm -hmm. they did uh, Prince Caspian and then Voyage of the Dawn Treader, um, you know, back in the day. But uh, and I think Voyage of the Dawn Treader is my favorite of the books. I, I read all these when I was a kid as well, um, and I love that sort of like um, 
swashbuckling vibe of of Don Treader. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, the previous movie, didn't really capture that quite as well, I thought. Uh, but it did have um, what's his name, uh, Will Poulter as uh, as Eustace Scrub, right? Wasn't wasn't that? Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't he play that that character? <laughs> yeah. It was like him as a kid. That was sort of like my introduction to to him as a, a child performer. But um, but yeah. Anyway, th- there's a lot to lot to think about here. Lots to talk about uh, with in regards to the Narnia stuff and like. Yes, we could have that that conversation about like what this means that Greta Gerwig is going to be, um, I guess, if you want to call it this, like sucked into another franchise or whatever. Um, she clearly like, you know, her husband, um, are they married? Is she and Noah Baumbach? I, th- I think they're, they're still married partnered. Or? Okay. Is, her, yeah. her partner, uh, Noah Baumbach, has, has worked with Netflix uh, consistently over the past several years, many, many times. So clearly he has a good relationship there. Hopefully she'll have a good relationship there. Um, hopefully this movie just won't like disappear into the the never-ending stream of Netflix dreck, you know, the, right. um, the, the, the um, uh, complaint that we always have about any Netflix original. Um, but uh, I guess, yeah, before we move on, do you have any other, any, any thoughts about this at all? I mean, I also just hope that it actually happens because like you said, Netflix, you know, can either sort of bury things or they can get you really excited about something and then pull the plug at the last minute. And this is not going to be cheap for them uh, because like you said, it's going to be very VFX heavy. Um, if they do line the witch in the wardrobe, y- you need a lion. <laughs> like you gotta, <laughs> you gotta build something. And I'm really hoping that this is something that they are truly looking to invest in and not just announce it, get people excited and then actually look at their bank account and recognize that that's not possible for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of love the idea of Gerwig going from this sort of, um, I don't know, like very, very ultra low budget kind of, you know, her, her, uh, early, early days as an actress. And then, emerging and blossoming into like this um this like big tent filmmaker i love the idea of her uh you know there's something that that we as like um sort of snobby cinephiles sometimes can like look at as like um you know a purity in in staying outside of the blockbuster realm Mm -hmm. but we need good blockbuster directors too because otherwise they're those movies are going to get made by someone. And mm-hmm. as we, oh, I mean, you know, fingers crossed that Barbie is as great as it looks, uh, but it looks like she's doing something actually like genuinely interesting with, with what could have been a very um, soulless adaptation. So yeah. uh, hopefully, <laughs> you know, if, if these movies are going to continue to exist and continue to be the thing that sort of props up Hollywood at large, then I hope that we can get great filmmakers like Greta Gerwig in there actually, you know, making interesting versions of this thing. So um, if we can't like completely shake up the paradigm of what uh, Hollywood is interested in making right now, like that, that would maybe be the, uh, the ideal option, but in a world, in a more pragmatic world, um, I'm totally down for uh, Greta Gerwig to be, you know, one of the key voices in this next generation of like, big budget storytelling. So um, yeah, fingers crossed it, it works out well. Uh, speaking of weird uh, projects, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Daniel Kaluuya is uh, producing a Barney movie. Um, this is also, I, I think this is also for Mattel, right? Is that? Yeah, this is a Mattel movie. Yeah. So uh, as, it, as is Barbie. Uh, and in that same New Yorker piece, um, one of the executives uh, of Mattel Films called this Barney film, which we don't know. I don't think we know if it's going to have or, or like who the uh, the writer and director of this project is. We just know that Daniel Kaluuya uh, is 
producing it. But his quote um, is really fascinating. He, he basically called this movie surrealistic. He compared it to the films of um, uh, Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones, like being John Malkovich in an adaptation. Uh, he said, quote, we're leaning into the millennial angst of the property rather than fine tuning this for kids. It's really a play for adults. Not that it's R rated, but it'll focus on some of the trials and tribulations of being 30 something growing up with Barney, just the level of disenchantment within the generation. Um, uh, okay. Um, <laughs> what, what do you think about that, BJ? All right. So, uh, I was the perfect age to grow up watching Barney. Uh, Barney and I go way back. Obviously, BJ and Baby Bop are besties of mine, and BJ was the first time I ever saw somebody on TV with my name. So, there was an immediate kinship there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the the trajectory of Barney, especially for millennials, is so weird. Uh, there was that Peacock docuseries, I Love You, You Hate Me, which sort of explored this idea of like parents really hated Barney and how many kids kind of internalize that of like, I love this thing, but my parents find it super annoying or they don't understand it. And then as the internet, you know, started becoming what it is now some of the earliest like viral videos or like shock videos were people like shooting barney dolls or like mm. making like twisted takes on barney because that was kind of the the icon that so many of us had growing up as children as we were also coming of age with the internet so i think it's really fascinating to have a a, a fictional movie kind of assess that connection and give it life um I think it's going to be really weird. I, I, I'm thinking of like death to smoochie kind of uh, vibes mm -hmm. a little bit. Um, so it's definitely possible. Um, but I, I really want to know what this is going to look like because weird, edgy Barney movie. Okay. I'm already on board, but weird, edgy Barney movie in the style of Charlie Kaufman I have to see this. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm super curious, and also like I'm I'm kind of shocked, honestly, to hear that this is Mattel's approach to this because they very easily could make this a play for kids and like a way to um, try to like reintroduce this. Uh, I hesitate to use the word iconic, but this this iconic character back into the sort of pop cultural zeitgeist and like maybe use it as a launch pad for a new version of a TV show or whatever. Like there, there are so many sort of, um, I don't know, like uh, obvious ways that, that a, a corporation could, could go about making a movie like this. And the fact that his, one of his quotes here is that basically referred to this as like an A24 type of take on Barney and, and said, uh, quote, it would be so daring of us and really underscore that we're here to make art, um, which is not, not an approach that I expected from Mattel. I, I sort of felt mm -hmm. like from everything that I've seen from the Barbie movie and the trailers and things like that, it sort of seems like Greta Gerwig got away with something. Um, but maybe Mattel is going to be like one of the, uh, I don't know, one of the brands that is like saying, okay, let's get interesting filmmakers in here and just like put fascinating spins on these, um, you know, recognizable properties that we own. And like, uh, let's just kind of see what happens, which is just so, that reminds me more of like, um, of like, uh, what is her name? Megan Ellison or something, you know, like the early mm -hmm. days of like Annapurna films or something like, you know, 2010s ish, early 2010s, um, 
where you just work with like great filmmakers making stories that no other studio would want to make or something. And like, this is obviously within, you know, under this corporate umbrella or whatever. And like, yeah, as, as, uh, who wrote this article for us? Uh, Sandy Schaefer wrote in in this um, slash film article like maybe we're gonna get Ari Aster's Magic Eight Ball movie and <laughs> like you know that's kind of a ridiculous thing. But like again, if it if it allows these creative personalities to put their stamp on uh, familiar um, works and like actually tell fascinating stories that maybe they wouldn't be able to elsewhere, um, th- isn't isn't that kind of like the best case scenario for what we're looking at in this landscape right now? Oh, totally. And I think there's also two things happening is that one, Mattel as a company is also, they're very self-aware of the legacies of their brand. There was definitely a period of time where I think Mattel was extremely protective, uh, like the era when they sued Aqua over Barbie Girl because they're like, how dare you say she's a blonde bimbo? Barbie is not that. And they like were really panicky and protective. But if you look at their shows like Barbie Life and the Dreamhouse, they're extremely aware of the different like subversive ways that you can approach Barbie. So as much as, you know, like you said, it feels like Greta Gerwig got away with something. It also feels like they're entering an era where they're very much embracing, you know, the the weird side that comes with a lot of the stuff that they own that are, you know, under their umbrella. Mm-hmm. So we've got that going on. But then the other thing is I think for a very long time, the quote unquote like auteurs of of cinema. I'm I'm gonna use Quentin Tarantino. He's the easiest example. But you have somebody like Tarantino who's like, I watch nothing but exploitation film, and here's this weird deep cut from this movie from the 60s in Japan that no one's ever heard of. Aren't I cool? And the the new class of auteurs, like the Greta Garwigs of the world, they're they're embracing the parts of themselves that are very normy. Um, but showing that like it's cool that like I grew up playing with Barbies that doesn't mean that I'm any less of an artist like that's okay and I feel like that's what we're getting here is we're getting these filmmakers who want to do something daring and they're like it's okay that I also grew up with this very recognizable thing that literally everyone else on the planet also grew up with and that doesn't suddenly like mean I lose street cred and there's something about that that I really like I think people are they're they're unafraid to embrace the very casual side of artistry. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. I never thought about it that way. Um, but yes, I, I especially like given the um, the sort of proliferation of like Saturday morning cartoons and like all of that kind of period in the you know the the let's call it mid eighties to nineties and and all of that where like a lot of these filmmakers grew up in that in that period. Um, that certainly makes a lot of sense when like everything was marketed in a certain way mm-hmm. and like you know, the age of, uh, of skip it and bop it and all, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Like I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, a couple years from now we get a skip it movie that is like, you know, oh, totally. does something totally weird like that. Like, but. because you kind of can't lie about it anymore. Like you can't be like, Oh, actually I was too cool for Barney when I was four. Shut up. No, you were not. Everybody was watching Barney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, well let's take a break and then we'll come right back. All right, so the next thing that I want to talk about here is that uh, we've learned a little bit more about the Stranger Things stage play. This is going to be called um, Stranger Things, what is it, Uh, The First Shadow. And um, this is going to be set in 1959, and it's going to serve as a prequel to what we've seen so far in the actual Netflix show. Um, I will just read you the synopsis here. 
1959, a regular town with regular worries. Young Jim Hopper's car won't start. Bob Newby's sister won't take his radio show seriously. And Joyce Maldonado uh, just wants to graduate and get the hell out of town. When new student Henry Creel arrives, his family finds that a fresh start isn't so easy and the shadows of the past have a very long reach. Brought to life by a multi-award winning creative team who take theatrical storytelling and stagecraft to a whole new dimension, this gripping new adventure will take you right back to the beginning of the Stranger Things story and may hold the key to the end. So, uh, yeah, um, I'll just, I'll jump right off BJ here at the top and just say like, I'm not super interested in this whole origin thing of Stranger Things. Like I appreciate that show. I appreciate the, the, I especially appreciate the world and the design and the characters. Um, I think Str- Stranger Things season four was like pretty bloated but i came around to it by the end like i i was really on board with like the last couple episodes um but i this idea of like you know what caused the upside down and all this uh the obsession that that the show has with its own mythology has never really been the most interesting thing about this particular story to me so i find myself a little turned off by this news of like oh, this stage show is going to like take us back and show us, you know, what really happened and whatever. Um, but maybe I'm in the minority there. What, what do you make of, um, of the Stranger Things phenomenon and also like the direction that this stage play seems to be taking? I, I'm of two minds about it. On one hand, I'm very much with you. I kind of don't care about an origin story. I'm a little interested in the Creel stuff because I do think that the Creel storyline was the strongest aspect of season four. Um, I don't really care about young Hopper or young Joyce. I am excited to, you know, get get newbie back because I, I loved him and, you know, gone too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only reason that I am genuinely like, oh, I'm down with this is there is a severe drought of horror stage plays in the theater um, because they're not super easy to pull off because it's a live production. There is, you can see, you know, this, the, the stage crew moving set pieces around. You can see the lights. You can see the people in real time. You're surrounded by audiences that can, you know, distract you and take you out of the moment a, a lot easier than they do in a movie theater. So they're really hard to pull off. And because of that, there's not a lot of them. Um, there's plenty of like horror movie parodies and like you know, things that kind of lean into horror comedy, especially in the world of musicals, but not a lot of horror stage plays. Um, and I feel like having such a high profile IP attached to it will definitely get people into the theater and want to see it, um, which will then hopefully, you know, spawn a craze of more horror on stage. I mm-hmm. would love for that to happen. Um, but I am also really fascinated to see what that will look like theatrically. I am far more interested in seeing the upside down you know, in a stage and seeing how they transform a stage than I am, you know, CGI on my TV screen. Mm-hmm. So my interest in it is more for like the the practical side of it than it is story. Like, I really don't care. I'm For me, if I, if I had the chance to see it, I'm not there for the story. I'm there to see what it's going to look like. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I didn't really think about that in terms of like what this could do for uh, horror stage play or horror on stage, I guess, which is, um, yeah, kind of a cool opportunity maybe that this has to sort of kickstart a, a mini movement or something like that. Um, but yeah, like you mentioned, like young Jim Hopper, young Joyce, you know, I, I guess maybe there's some novelty in like seeing those characters as 
kids that are potentially the ages of the the kids that we've been following in the Stranger Things universe and the, and the show. Um, I guess, but yeah, that, that's never really been like my my big draw to what this the story mm-hmm. is doing here. Um, so and like the idea of watching this as like some sort of um, some sort of uh, puzzle box to be unlocked where a secret is going to be revealed that like helps point the way toward what happens in season five. Like we know that season five is the the final season of the show. Um, I think they've got spinoffs in the works and things like that. But like the, the final version of like this, this core story that they're telling. Uh, we also know that season five has been delayed by the writer strike, which is still ongoing. Um, so I, I'm not sure when season five is actually, is actually going to make its way you know, on, onto Netflix screens, but this play, I believe opens this fall. And so uh, it's probably going to be a while because I would guess that they want to make as much money um, from paying audiences live, you know, in, in person. Uh, mm-hmm. It's probably going to be a while before they actually put a filmed version of this on Netflix, which seems inevitable, right? Like that, that has there's to no way that it's not happening. Like this yeah. will be Netflix's answer to like Disney plus getting Hamilton. Yes. A hundred percent. That was the comparison that was floating around in my mind as well. But I, I feel like maybe it'll be like, you know, three or four years or something before they actually do that. Like after stranger things, uh, season five has, has wrapped up, then maybe this show, this stage show will, will make its way onto Netflix and people can like watch it um, and sort of like retroactively try to put those pieces together. Um, but my, my feeling just based on the timeline of the whole thing and the sort of practicality of it is that like, it's not like they're going to release this, or, you know, open the stage show this fall and like immediately film it and put it on Netflix and people will be able to watch this and like take notes of what they can, what they can learn to unlock the secrets of season five, which is, just gonna, which is then going to come out, you know, in a year or two, it just doesn't seem feasible to me. So, um, yeah, I don't know. A- any other thoughts on this before we move on to our final topic, BJ? I have a feeling, I mean, depending on the the writer strike and how long, you know, that goes on, that I think is going to d- dictate a lot of things. But I very much see this was probably planned that they would release the stage recording of it in between like the end of season five and then whatever spinoff is coming next. That's mm-hmm. what I think was probably their sweet spot. But if the strike continues they might try to drop it early just so that like, you know, the attention doesn't die down or like interest doesn't go away because it's going to take so long for season five to come out. Yeah. Um, but well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think they have an animated show in the works as well. Um, and we're still waiting to find out if the actors are going to strike. They had an extension. I don't know if we mentioned that on the podcast or not yet, but um, they had an, ex- an extension uh, with their, with the AMPTP um, about like the negotiations for their contract, I believe the extension goes until uh, July 12th. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a few more days before I think next Wednesday is July 12th. So uh, a few more days before we figure out what happens with that. And then, you know, maybe that will sort of speed things along strike wise if, if those two guilds are on strike at the same time. But yeah, lots of um, balls in the air there. Uh, okay, so let's get to our last story here, which is that uh, John Wick chapter four has an ending that um I guess the the news is that uh, its original ending was nearly a lot less subtle than the version that we actually saw in theaters. So mm-hmm. I'm going to spoil the ending of John Wick Chapter 4 here. If you have not seen the movie yet, um, click away now. So I just wanted to give people ample warning that, that we're going to be talking about this. 
Uh, BJ, I think you and I have talked about John Wick Chapter 4 on this podcast already. Um, I think so. <laughs> but the uh, the ending of the movie involves uh, what we appear what appears to be John Wick's death. So in the latest Empire magazine issue, uh, Chad Stahelski, who's the director of all these movies, said, we shot an ending where you actually saw John Wick at the end of the movie. It's very clear that he was still alive. The audiences we tested with absolutely preferred the ambiguous ending. So we know that the the actual ending shows a gravestone or a, a grave marking of some kind that says John Wick, um, but we don't actually see his body. And uh, Chad Stahelski said, quote, as a storyteller, I like the way it ended. I prefer tragedies. But John Wick is a campfire story anyways, right? We've never pretended in any way that it's a real life grounded story. So did John die? Did John Wick die? Did one of those personas die? Did he have to clean the slate? Did he fool the high table or did he actually pass? You know, we've seen John take worse injuries. To be really honest, I would say the persona of Wick had to die so he could either escape or move on. That goes back to Dante, which is um, very much like a, an influence of uh, Stahelski. He, he loves, you know, ancient mythology and incorporating that and weaving that into the world of John Wick. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like the idea of, of John Wick as a campfire story. I like that. Um, I don't think I've ever heard it really put that way before with this particular franchise, but we've talked about the sort of like fantastical nature of it and like the heightened stylization of it. Um, but I, I, I love the, the campfire story analogy there because, uh, it, it sort of, um, implies that there's uh, a little bit of, a like a, a narrator that you can't quite trust, right? Um, so I'm wondering what you think about the idea that like, you know, John Wick Chapter 5 is is in development. We don't know if it's going to happen yet, but financially speaking, John Wick Chapter 4 performed very, very well. So it seems like a, only a matter of time before Lionsgate gives it an official green light. So BJ, what do you think about this idea that they actually filmed this version that was a lot less subtle where, they, where you actually saw him maybe like looking at his own grave or something like that and walking away? Um, but knowing that that chapter five seems like almost an inevitability, what do you think about this? So first off, I'm really excited and impressed that audiences preferred the ambiguous ending because I think we hear a lot about like, oh, modern audiences today are too stupid. They need everything, you know, spoon fed to them to understand what's going on. So to hear that they like overwhelmingly preferred the ambiguous ending just is proof that that is kind of BS, that that's not necessarily true, that audiences are a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Um, so that makes me very happy. Um, but I love the idea of John Wick as this kind of like folk hero. I like to imagine that maybe that means that in like elementary schools, people are like, and today's lesson is on Paul Bunyan, Johnny Appleseed and John Wick. And that rules to me. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I guess one question that I, I wonder about is like, how far do you think this franchise can go? We know that um, there's a, a new uh, Peacock show coming called The Continental, which I'm not really personally excited for because I feel like it, it just seems like a low rent version of, of what this is. And it's again, it's another like prequel going back to the early days of the, the hotel. Um, we do know that uh, there's at least one spinoff that's either, I think they finished production already called Ballerina, which has uh, Ana de Armas. Um, in that same world that we've seen. And I think there's probably going to be a, a cameo from Keanu Reeves in that movie. But like what, I, I guess one of the things that I like about the John Wick movies is that they've been essentially back to back to back to back. So like you see the compounding effects of all of this action and all this insane shit that this character has had to deal with um, really like 
break down his body where he's just like a desperate, tired man by the end of all this. Um, so now, presumably, with the idea that, like, maybe potentially he's faked his own death, he's going to give himself some breathing room to come back. So, like, do you think this uh, chapter five, if it happens, can, like, kickstart a new trilogy where he has, like, more energy and he's, like, ramped up, rearing, you know, ready, rearing to go or whatever? Or do you think that, like, this franchise might be better off, um, I don't know, like, not uh, tempting fate twice like that? I feel similarly, this is going to be a really weird comparison, admittedly, but I feel about John Wick 5 the same way I think I did about like Toy Story 4, which is like, you had such a perfect ending. I don't need more of this. But then I watched it and I was like, nah, I'm not mad that I watched this. This is pretty fun. Um, that's kind of how I'm viewing chapter five is that I don't need it. I am very happy with how uh, chapter four ended, but I'm not going to be upset about more John Wick just because I love them. <laughs> I love them so much. And if it is, you know, a rejuvenated John Wick, that's great. Or if this is now John Wick, I don't know, taking sort of like a mentor role and, you know, training a new person or something, whatever they want to take with it. I'm going to watch it. Uh, we'll see how it goes. But I do definitely think there is an expiration date um, because I think that it, it not that it it can't be within the realm of possibility because obviously like 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 Stahelski said, he's kind of a campfire tale. It's not grounded in reality. And I definitely live by the John Woo school of logic is boring. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think after, at a certain point, people are going to be like, this dude should have died like seven times. Why is he still fighting? Um, and I think that is we're, we're going to start creeping up on that a lot faster than I think they realize, which is a bummer because it seems like chapter four, like John Wick has always been popular, but chapter four, like it really feels like it crossed over from being like this kind of niche, really cool action film to being like one of the biggest movies of the year. Um, so it's weird that it's really picked up steam kind of towards the end here a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And we'll see. Maybe like in 10 years, we'll look back in this and laugh and be like, oh, man, remember when we thought like chapter four was kind of near the end. But uh, <laughs> like, right. It's like, like Fast John and the Furious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, if only we lived in a world where the John Wick movies went to, to 10 entries and were still as consistently entertaining as the Fast and Furious franchise. I can I can hope so. If John um, Wick goes to space, I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I don't know if I'm ready for that yet, BJ. But, <laughs> but uh, we'll see. Maybe by its ninth entry, <laughs> maybe it'll be right. time. Uh, okay. All right. Th I think that's going to do it for today's show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes of the episode here. The Slash Film Show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next week.